This is Bethany College Online Radio, a service of the Communications and Media Arts Department. Welcome back, everybody, to the Three Rivers Talk Show here on the Bethany Online Radio. Once again, your host, Drew Von Sayo, set to bring you the latest with your Pittsburgh Steelers, Pittsburgh Penguins, Pittsburgh Pirates, and more, as we have a lot to talk about here today, starting with the Pittsburgh Penguins, as they have to find a way to replace Chris Letang temporarily. Of course, as you all probably know by now, Monday afternoon, evening, Chris Letang suffered a stroke, so he is out indefinitely for the Penguins. Played two games without him to this point as he was scratched from the lineup Tuesday night against Carolina and then obviously not playing last night in the win over Vegas. Now, the immediate solution to replace Letang is moving Jeff Petrie up to the first defensive pairing and then slotting Chad Ruedel in the lineup while also keeping the rest of the left-handed defensemen in the lineup as well. Of course, Ron Hextall brought Jeff Petrie in to have a very similar profile to Chris Letang in that he's capable of handling responsibilities defensively but also has some offensive skills and attributes in him. So you're going to see a lot of Jeff Petrie now for the time being with Chris Letang out on the first pairing, eating up minutes on the power play. And that is done intentionally. That was how Ron Hextall drew this up. Not that he wanted 
to ever have a time where Latang was out, but to also get some offensive contributions from the right-handed side of the defensive pairings behind Latang, and then to also have somebody to step in in the event that Latang had to go down. And that's exactly, as I said, what you're getting here with the Penguins. Of course, Chris Latang is a player that you're not going to be able to replace completely, both offensively and defensively. He's just simply on a different level compared to even someone like Jeff Petrie. As much as Jeff Petrie is a talented defenseman, in some regards, he's no Chris Letang. So the Penguins are going to be suffering defensively for the time being because you're essentially losing Letang and adding Ruedel. Ruedel is a solid and steady defenseman, but he's never going to be more than a third-pairing guy. I mean, Chad Ruedel is the typical seventh defenseman in the NHL. And unfortunately for him, that's all he's ever going to be. That's all the Penguins will ever use him as. So it's a big hit to the Penguins' defensive pairings when he is in and Latang is out. So you would love to see the Penguins figure things out defensively to help compensate for not having Chris Letang. And unfortunately, it's not going to happen. But what the Penguins need to do to help compensate for not having Chris Letang is to call up Ty Smith from the AHL. You brought him over for a reason from the Devils when you traded John Marino. Currently in the AHL. I understand that Ty Smith is a left-handed defenseman. Chris Letang is a right-handed defenseman. I get that. But you're going to get the offensive numbers from Ty Smith similarly to what you got from Chris Letang. And, of course, I say similarly because, again, nobody can replace Chris Letang permanently. It's just not going to happen. And so then you get you get Ty Smith in the lineup for Letang. I would throw Ty Smith into the lineup right now over Brian Dumoulin. First of all, the fact that Brian Dumoulin has the A on his sweater in Letang's absence is a joke. Brian Dumoulin, I get he has been with the Penguins for quite a while. I get that for the vast majority of that, he has been on the first pairing with Latang. But Brian Dumoulin, in my opinion, does not have the play on the ice that warrants him to be named as an alternate captain in place of Chris Latang. I would much rather see that A go to somebody like Brian Rust. Jake Gensel, Ricard Raquel, if they want to give it to a defenseman, then you give it to Marcus Pedersen. 
because aside from Dumoulin, now that Latang is out of the lineup, Pedersen has been one of the longest tenured Penguins. Of course, you can't give it to Ruido, even though he's probably been here longer than Pedersen, simply due to the fact that he's your seventh D-man in the lineup because of, of something unfortunate like a stroke. So in that regard, Pedersen, if you absolutely feel it's necessary to have one of the alternate captains be a defenseman, Pedersen deserves that over Dumoulin. But getting back to my last point, I would much rather have Ty Smith in the lineup than Brian Dumoulin. Brian Dumoulin is still towards the top of the league as far as being on the ice when a goal is scored against the Penguins. At one time, you used to be able to sit there and say, well, that's just a coincidence. He's always on the ice when the Penguins get scored on. But that's not the case anymore. The fact of the matter is, Brian Dumoulin is just not that good. And he's constantly a liability on the ice. Marcus Pedersen has played much better than him so far this season. P.O. Joseph has played much better than him so far this season. And yet, not only does Brian Dumoulin get to remain on the first line, or first defensive pairing, I should say, now he has the A on his sweater in Latang's place, and he's staying in the lineup? I mean, what is the issue with Brian Dumoulin sitting because he's not playing well? I understand the Penguins are in a bit of a pickle right now with the cap space because they don't have a whole lot of cap space to try and call up someone like Ty Smith. But if they have to lose someone because of it, then that's what you have to do. You can't just continue to throw out Brian Dumoulin on the ice because you don't want to risk losing someone on waivers or you don't want to eat salary. I mean, the Penguins have gotten themselves in such a predicament right now that they would rather accept mediocrity on the ice and deal with players performing poorly like Brian Dumoulin, like Jeff Carter, than account for their struggles and make moves within their own roster to counter those struggles. If I got a notification in two minutes saying that Dumoulin was going to be put on waivers and Ty Smith was going to be called up, I would be jumping for joy. I would be so excited because Brian Dumoulin is not playing well, as I've already said. And unfortunately, what Mike Sullivan and Ron Hextall are doing right now is they are giving too many players the benefit of the doubt and saying that they're just in a slump right now, they're going to snap out of it. I would understand if that down time period, if you will, was a few weeks, a month, maybe six weeks at most. 
But we are now in the beginning of December. Okay. The beginning of December, the Penguins have played 24 games out of 82. That is well over a quarter of their season. Hockey started the regular season at the end of September. September 25th to be exact. Rather, October 13th, September was the preseason. October 13th was the beginning of the regular season. So in 11 days' time, that'll be two full months in which the season has gone on. This honeymoon phase, if you will, to describe it, of Brian Dumoulin not playing well and Jeff Carter have almost expired. You know, Ron Hextall, for the longest time, was very actively trying to find a trade partner to get Kasperi Kapanen off of the Penguins' hands because Kapanen wasn't fitting in the lineup. Why is he not doing the same for Brian Dumoulin? Why is he not doing the same for Jeff Carter? I'm going to go right out there and say that Part of the reason why Kapanen is struggling so much and now why Danton Heinen is being scratched and why he struggled so much was because of Jeff Carter. Jeff Carter is nowhere near the level that he should be. I've said it many times before. Jeff Carter, the decision to keep him around was not a good one. And then to not only keep him around but offer him a contract extension as well It's a joke. And again, you're continuing to play Jeff Carter simply because of his contract. And you're playing him to prove a point because nobody's going to take Jeff Carter's contract at his age and with how terrible he's playing out on the ice. I understand Kapanen wasn't performing when he was in the lineup before he got scratched. So then he started to be scratched. I understand Danton Heinen isn't performing. And so now he's the one being scratched. But the Penguins would be much better off if Jeff Carter was the one who was being scratched. And I know some of you listening might be trying to kind of figure out, well, how would the lineups how would the lines work if Jeff Carter wasn't in the lineup? Here's what the best Penguins lines would look like. You have your third line of Heinen on the left wing, Bluger at center, Kapanen on the right. And then your fourth line is McGinn at left wing, Paling at center, Archibald on the right. That is your best bottom six right there. And you tell Jeff Carter, to get comfy watching from the press box. Because Jeff Carter is not doing a damn thing right now for the Penguins. So why not continue to stay youthful, if you will, by playing both Danton Heinen and Kasperi Kapanen. I understand both of those guys aren't spring chickens anymore, but they're much younger than Jeff Carter. 
I understand that Brock McGinn, Josh Archibald aren't fresh into the league anymore. They're not rookies, but they're much younger than Jeff Carter and Ryan Paling. Play those three as a fourth line. If it doesn't work, then by some chance, all you do is just change it up until you can find line combinations that work. But Jeff Carter is not getting it done right now for the Penguins. There's a reason why Jeff Carter was very willingly given up by the LA Kings. I understand the Penguins sent them an incredible package, or rather a reasonable package. But Danton Heinen and Kasperi Kapanen are not the issues with the Penguins right now. There were times where Carter played as a winger for Evgeny Malkin. And Malkin was terrible with Jeff Carter. Jason Zucker, part of his struggles last year, were because he was on a line with Jeff Carter. And Carter killed his momentum. Evan Rodriguez last year and the season prior was not as productive as he could have been because of Jeff Carter. It doesn't matter who the player is for the Penguins. Now, of course, there are exceptions to that. If a person is not performing as well as they need to be or should be, you can't continue to play them simply because of their contract. And you can't continue to force them into the lineup simply because you might have to make a big roster move and put someone on waivers. You know, why the Penguins aren't trying to get younger is beyond me. You have that capability right now by getting rid of Jeff Carter, at the very least getting him out of your lineup, and you have young players down in the AHL that you can call on. Drew O'Connor, Valtteri Pustinen, Philip Hollander, Sam Poulin. I mean, all of those guys are ready to go. Pustinen, Hollander have seen time with the Penguins this season. And I don't want to say that they played poorly. They didn't stand out by any means. But if you're going to take someone who is, let's just say, slightly below league average, I would much rather it be the 21, 22-year-olds and even maybe 23 or 24-year-olds in Pustinen, O'Connor, Hollander, I would take any of them over the below-average Jeff Carter. Because whether it's Pustinen, Hollander, or Drew O'Connor, they're young. They have the capability to improve and to get better and grow into the game at the NHL level. Jeff Carter is pushing 40 years old. Why he is still in the lineup and not only in the lineup, but playing on the third line is beyond me. At this point, the Penguins would be much better off putting Teddy Bluger on the third line and Jeff Carter on the fourth line. 
Jeff Carter is doing nothing with his minutes as a third-line center. Give them to Bluger, who deserves them. And then when Jeff Carter, with a little bit of luck maybe, starts performing well with significantly less minutes on the fourth line, then you maybe start to reintroduce him to some third-line minutes. But again, the Penguins are not getting what they need to out of Jeff Carter and Brian Dumoulin. Both of them should be watching from the press box or maybe in the case of Dumoulin being claimed on waivers by another team. And that's the bottom line. You're listening to the Three Rivers Talk Show here on the Bethany Online Radio. We'll step aside for a few minutes. And when we return, the latest around the NFL coming up next right here on the Three Rivers Talk Show.
And we're back on the Three Rivers Talk Show, latest around the NFL. Joined once again in the studio by Dylan Bazika. Dylan, welcome back. How's it going, man? How was your break, man? was pretty good. Got to spend some time with the family, get a little bit of stress relief with not having homework, so I can't complain about that. And I feel it. I feel it. Guessing yours was very similar? Oh, yeah. Just relax, watch football, spend time with the family, and that's about it. I'm caught up on a couple of schoolwork, and got one more week left, man. Let's get there. You did schoolwork over break? Yeah, I had, a couple of, I had a couple of assignments I, I didn't do yet, and I got them done over break. Couldn't be me. <laughs> Just kidding, I had to study for a physics test, Ugh, unfortunately. Sounds horrid. So, getting to the latest around the NFL, the big news, the return of Deshaun Watson against this former team Sunday afternoon in Houston. I mean, what are your, what are your expectations for Deshaun Watson in his season debut? I mean, I expect. I mean, I expect the Browns to go out there and beat the Texans because the Texans are just terrible. Just terrible, one and nine and one. But I don't. Like, I think Deshaun will be okay. I mean, of course, he hasn't played in like two and a half years, so he's going to be rusty. But he'll probably go out there, throw for about one fifty, and throw for maybe a touchdown or two. Mostly, just I expect the Browns to just keep running the rock with Nick Chubb and Hunt and. Yeah, I mean, their defense has been playing good, and they could go on a run because, I mean, their schedule upcoming, they got Texans this week at the Bengals, Ravens, Saints, Commanders, Steelers. They could. I mean, that's not a bad schedule. No, I mean, you got the you got the Bengals, the Ravens in there. That might be, depending on how they do in those yeah. games, I mean, that could define their season right there. Most definitely. Because, I mean, you figure even if they – beat the Texans, but then they drop those next two. They're 5-9. and nine. At that point, you're not getting in the playoffs. Oh, no, not a chance. Like I think they'll s- split one between those games. I think they'll beat mm-hmm. Baltimore and they'll lose to the Bengals. I could see it. And I think they I think they went out. Well, I don't know. They might lose to the Commanders. I think they'll mm-hmm. beat Pittsburgh regardless. I don't know. I mean, that. well, I shouldn't say that because the Steelers are terrible this year. So. Not as bad as the Any- Broncos. <laughs> anything can happen at that point. I mean... The Browns got the better of the Steelers early in the season, but very rarely do you see the Steelers lose to the same opponent twice in the same year. Yeah, it's very rare. So that's about the only thing that with that matchup that's keeping me sane right now is knowing mm-hmm. that the Steelers more than likely won't lose to the same team twice. But we got some other interesting matchups this week rather looking back at scores from last week i mean we had some enticing games last weekend you had that raiders seahawks game that went into overtime josh jacobs having the game of his life had a freaking phenomenal game he's leading the league in rushing now he's having his best year to date so far Mm -hmm. the raiders are four and seven (laughs) it is it's crazy the josh mcdaniels effect yeah, I mean, hey, they beat, they swept the Broncos this year, so. Well, that's not saying much. No, no not really, not really. But. but Jacobs had 229 yards, two touchdowns for the Raiders. Prayers out to you if you played against him in fantasy football. And he had six catches for 74 yards. Mm-hmm. So, if you want a PPR league and Jacobs was up against you, whew, you were cooked, man. You weren't winning. That. He dropped, I think, like 48 points. Yeah, something ridiculous. insane. He had the Packers and the Eagles in a shootout. The Eagles hanging on just barely, 40-33. to 33. I mean, that was, 
I know we've had a lot of great games this season, and I know the Packers are four and eight right now, but that has to be up there for game of the year. Oh, most definitely. I mean, when Aaron Rodgers got out, I was like, oh, dude, this game is about to go poorly for the Packers. Jordan Love comes out there, throws a 63-yard touchdown to Christian Watson. I was like, oh, hold on. Hold on, ladies and gentlemen. Hold on. We're not done yet. This game ain't over yet. But, yeah, that game was a real fun game to watch. Another fun game that was really good this past week, Chargers and Cardinals. Yes. Chargers getting the game-winning touchdown with 15 seconds left. They were down 23-24, and they were like, you know what? Forget this. Let's just go for the one right now. And they went for two, and Jared Everett caught the two-point conversion for the one. And they weren't the only team to do that last week. The Jags no. did it as well over Baltimore. Yeah. How about ba- yeah. Speaking of Baltimore, how about Baltimore always up by big in the fourth and the second half and then just absolutely blowing it? Yeah, I don't know what they're doing down there in Baltimore. Like, it's crazy, man. But you know what, though? That fourth quarter against the Ravens, was the best I've ever seen Trevor Lawrence oh, in the NFL. That last drive he had, one of the best game-winning drives this year. Yeah. Without a doubt. But also, as far as the quarter goes, I mean, that was one of his best performances oh, in his yeah, career. most definitely. And who was it that came out and was talking about Trevor Lawrence and basically blamed his issues last year on Urban Meyer? Yeah. Um, who probably did that? Basically saying that they were thankful to have Doug Peterson now. Oh, I think it was the kicker that said that. I think it was Josh Lambeau or, or whoever, whatever the kicker's name is. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me because didn't Lambeau have his own issues with Urban Meyer last year? Oh, yeah. He, <laughs> Urban Meyer, like, hit, punched him or kicked him in the leg or something like that because he, like, did see, said something. Yeah. So, not a lot of people in Jacksonville like Urban Meyer right now. No, 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 no. And Doug Peterson, what, I wish, I wish, my Broncos hired Doug Pearson because he's such a great head coach. And look what he's doing with Jacksonville. Yeah. I mean, they're they're young, but, I mean, they're four and seven. Yeah. I mean, some of the games they lost have been like one possession games. Mm-hmm. So. I mean, like you said, you know, obviously, well, the, the loss of the Chiefs, that was a two-score game, but even yeah, still. One still. One-score game against your Broncos. One-score game against the Giants. One-score game against the Colts. One score against the Texans. Wow, that's one they're going to want back. Eight-point game against Philly. Yep. And then a six-touchdown against Commanders. Yeah. Every loss has been by one possession. Yeah. Except, except for, for the Kansas City game. Yeah. And so, like you said, they're competing in every game. The Jaguars are on the rise, that's for sure. And they're going to continue to shock people. But... Like you said, I found it interesting that we had those two games where the teams just said, you know what, we're going to go down swinging and try and go for the win rather than yeah. just playing it safe. So when they got the Lukes, I mean, the Jags, are, they were four, they were three and seven. So they're like, forget it. I mean, we're playing mm-hmm. Baltimore. He's one of the best team, one of the best AFC teams in the league. Yeah. And just say, screw it. We got nothing to lose. Let's go out there and be. If we get it, we get it. If we don't, we don't. So, mm-hmm. well, same with the Ch- Chargers. I mean, they were – Five and five, they were five hundred. So I mean, I see yeah. why they did it because they have playoff implications. They're fight, yeah, they're fighting for a playoff still. But yeah, there's a lot of good games on last week. Even mm-hmm. the Monday night game between the Steelers and the Colts. Uh, that was a battle of the toilet bowl there. No, <laughs> I was so mad watching that game because I had Jonathan Taylor on fantasy and Matt Ryan. They were driving. They're at the two yard line of the Steelers. Mm-hmm. They're, he's about to hand it off to Jonathan Taylor. 
And Ryan fumbled the snap, and I think Highsmith like dove on. I was like, and I lost. I lost my fantasy game by a point because of that. Wow. I was very upset with that. <laughs> but I mean, while we're on the subject of the game, I understand he is a very new head coach. But what was Jeff Saturday doing in the fourth quarter? I know, but there was 30 seconds left. He had all three timeouts. He just kept going. I was like, dude, call a timeout, please. Call a timeout. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, I'm not going to sit here and complain about it too much from a Steelers fan perspective. But from an NFL fan, I mean, what are you doing? Especially earlier in the season when he was on ESPN dragging coaches Mm -hmm. for their poor clock management. He went off on Nathaniel Hackett earlier in the season. He did this, like, the Seattle game. He burned off, like, 40 seconds. He had all three timeouts yeah. and then didn't do it. He just pulled the thing back right there. Mm-hmm. Like, why Why are you not going to use a timeout? It's not like, oh, we just need a field goal to win the game, so we're trying to kill the clock, run it down to the last possible second, and then call a timeout. Mm-hmm. You're trailing and trailing by a touchdown. So you need as much time on the clock as you can get. And he just for some reason, decided not to call timeouts. I mean, he took ownership of it, but at that point, it's too little too late. Yeah, after the game, he's like, yeah, wish I had a third down back, in, in all honesty. He wish I used a timeout, Saturday said. And, mm-hmm. I mean, he, he, did, he said something like he didn't have a good feel for it. Like, we were in disarray a little bit, and he just wanted, like, to hurry up because it's a one-possession game and just wanted to get a playoff. But, I mean, that came back to bite him in the butt, and mm-hmm. Colton ended up losing that game. And then, of course, we had great matchups on Thanksgiving, too. Oh, I mean. How about that Bills and Detroit yep. game? My goodness. I love watching the Lions play. They're just so fun to watch. I really thought they were going to pull it out. <laughs> so did I. But the fourth quarter, they always find a way to blow it, and it makes no sense. Yeah. It's like Baltimore in the fourth quarter. They can't hold on to any lead. They always blow it at the end. Mm-hmm. The Josh Allen effect there. For Buffalo, I mean, Allen didn't really have like he had a solid game, yeah. but wasn't nothing crazy like he's been doing. No, I just meant more like leading that oh. game-winning drive to have Bass uh, yeah, kick the field Stephon goal. Diggs, yeah, at the 20, 25 yard line, just completes a forty-something yard bomb to Diggs on the first play of the game-winning drive. I'm like, dude, really? Like, come yeah. on, y'all know he was going to Stephon. Like, let's go, guys. Yeah, there's I mean, three Lions DBs on him. He still caught it. That's crazy. And then you had. Giants Cowboys, which that was the most viewed Thanksgiving game ever. Mm-hmm. I don't know why, because I didn't think that was such a great. I mean, it was just boring to watch. I mean, you had two teams that were seven and three. Yeah, I mean, I the Bills and Lions game was better. It was more fun to watch. Yeah, I mean, as far as like, like you said, fun to watch Bills and Lions. But when you look at the entire the matchup, the oh, division yeah. rivalry picture, I mean, the the, the Dallas game has that crown right there and yeah, that was just i mean I, I mean first half i mean giants won the first half but the second mm-hmm. half Dallas was absolutely Cowboys, dominated yeah. and i was like come on y'all <laughs> what are we doing but i mean the giants are seven and were they seven and four seven and four now giants seven and four yep cowboys that are entire eight. division as of right now will be going to the postseason that's insane remember everyone last year all oh, the nsc least man this team's so terrible and all this and that not every single one of them is above 500, mm-hmm. which is insane. It went from NFC least to NFC beast. Yeah, <laughs> literally. And the, the best thing about that Cowboys-Giants game, 
was the fact that it was Dalton Schultz who was Dalton. really the hero for the Cowboys. Them tight ends were beasting and feasting on Thanksgiving. My yeah. goodness. I mean, when you have a team like Dallas who has weapons such as CeeDee Lamb, Michael Gallup, you don't really expect the tight end in Dalton Schultz to be the difference maker and catch not one but two touchdown passes, but the Giants just couldn't seem to cover him. No, they couldn't cover any tight end. And their other tight end, Jake Ferguson, he had three catches for 57 yards. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, the tight ends were eating up the Giants' defense on Thanksgiving. And Zeke had himself a good game, too. Had one of his better games of the year. 16 carries, 92 yards, and a touchdown. Was it Ferguson or was it Schultz that hurdled the Giants defenders? It was Ferguson. He had yeah. a crazy hurdle against that Giants DB. I was like, oh, look at the big fella getting up there. Mm-hmm. Oh, my goodness. It was that, was, that was wild. And then the Thursday night game, New England, Minnesota. I mean, that was a really good game as well. Minnesota just edging New England. but. Yeah. Pitch just kind of got screwed over on a touchdown, the Hunter Henry touchdown. Yeah, that was that was the whole controversy now there. Now, see, they, they had that same type of catch like that earlier in the season. Travis Kelsey made. Mm-hmm. They gave it to him. You know why? Because he's on the Chiefs, and that's Pat Mahomes. I don't – I mean, I'm not going to sit here and say that that's the difference maker. I think so, because the Chiefs get everything. Every call, they barely get any calls against them. If you look, any like crucial game changing moments, Chiefs always get the call every time. I mean, I'm not saying that there aren't moments where the calls go in their way. I just, I think the biggest issue is, and I know the Cal- don't know what a touchdown is yeah. nowadays. I mean, hey, they say if the ball crosses that line, mm-hmm. it's a touchdown. I know the Kelsey incident and the Hunter Henry one were both reviewed. But the problem is you have – it wasn't the same officiating crew no. at the Chiefs game. Every officiating yeah. crew is different. And they're going to all interpret it different ways. So even if it gets reviewed, what also has to be taken into account as well is what was the call on the field. Yeah. They ruled a touchdown at first. For Hunter Henry. Yeah. And they overturned it. Did I wonder, did they rule a touchdown for Kelsey as well mm-hmm. at first? Yeah. They reviewed it, and they they gave it to him. Wow. Mm Mm-hmm. Like I said, Mm. Chiefs get everything. (laughs) Chiefs get all the calls. But, and this this is 100% the Steelers fan coming out in me. That is karma for the Jesse James play because he caught that damn ball. (laughs) I will die on that hill. I remember he he did catch that, and they all wrote it. and uh, He was down at, what, the one or something? They said it was incomplete. They're nuts. You know why they said that? You know who's QB of the Patriots then? You know who's Tom said? Brady. Tom Brady. Yes. You know he didn't clinch a playoff spot yet in that game? Tom Brady. If he won that game, he caught a playoff spot. And guess mm-hmm. what? Got a playoff spot because of that. Yeah. Even Ben. I know Ben was on a podcast or something. And one of the dudes asked him a question about that Jesse James. He was like, oh, 100% now is a touchdown. We got screwed over by the refs. Yeah. I mean, the rule for a catch now is different than it was then. But... I mean, why is it so hard for the NFL to establish guidelines for what is a catch? It makes no sense. I mean, for like, I don't know, man. Like, I mean, that Jesse James thing, he had possession of it, and he yeah. got the ball across the line. His knees weren't down. Mm-hmm. The ball crosses that white line in the front of the end zone. 
That is a touchdown. As long yeah. as it passes, even a little bit, a little tip of it passes, it's a touchdown. The only discrepancy when that happens should be if the ball is not being controlled when it crosses the goal line. Yeah. That's the only discrepancy. If it looks controlled crossing the goal line, it's a touchdown. It's a touchdown. Yeah. Even if the ball crosses and then he ends up like bobbling it, doesn't matter. It's a touchdown. Yeah. Because technically, once that ball crosses, it's a the yeah. play's dead. Play's dead. It's a touchdown. Yeah. And again, that's that's a whole other mess that the NFL is going to have to sort out. Yeah. But I know they said someone they're going to work on it during the off season, like the officials and everything mm-hmm. get together. The rule, what's a touchdown, what's not a touchdown, like the yeah. possession stuff and everything. So I think they'll get that worked out. Mm-hmm. And then we do have a lot of good matchups this week. I mean, you've got the 7-4 and four Titans taking on the 10-1 and one Eagles. 7-4 Jets versus the 9-2 and two Vikings. Yep. You've got 8-3 and three Dolphins, 7-4 and four 49ers, Chiefs-Bengals on CBS. Chargers Raiders should be a good one. Yeah. Steelers Falcons. Another toilet bowl. No, no, no. I mean, Falcons are up for a playoff spot because how bad that division is. Yeah, but. Ooh, that, ooh. Yeah, that whole division. Commanders Giants. Mm hmm. Another fun, even though both teams probably won't make the postseason, just a fun game to watch. Jags and Lions. Yeah, that'll be a great be a one. shootout. Yeah. And then. What a terrible Sunday night matchup of Colts and Cowboys. Yeah, and I just I just looked. Uh, Tom Peller or Adam Schefter just tweeted out, starting corner for the Colts, Kenny Moore the second will be out, along with their right tackle Brandon Smith. Well, that just got went from bad to worse for the Colts. Yeah. So, uh, and Dallas are favored by ten and a half. Yeah. So yeah, it's gonna be take that how you will. <laughs> yeah, that that's gonna be no bueno. And then we have a terrible Monday night matchup, too, with Saints and Bucks. I don't want to say it's terrible. I mean, any every NFC South game that they play is going to – a tight division can make the playoffs somehow. Oh, yeah. I mean, for, uh, with that implication, of course, it'll be a great matchup. But, I mean, who wants to see a 4-8 and eight team and a 5-6 and six team on Monday night football? No one. That was my I point wouldn't. about it being I a terrible wouldn't. matchup. It's like having the Broncos on primetime. You don't want that. Thankfully, next week. Yeah, they got flexed we got out. Mercy. Thank you. Thank you, Roger Goodell, for flexing us out of Sunday night football against the Chiefs. We would have got absolutely slaughtered against the Chiefs. They put a much better game with the Chargers and Dolphins. That I would much rather watch that game than Broncos and Chiefs. You didn't want to see Mahomes throw for 450 on no, time? No, I did not want to see <laughs> Mahomes throw for over 400 and Russell Wilson not even get over 200. Let's ride. <laughs> Broncos country, let's lose. <laughs> but, I mean, like you said, no, a lot of, a lot of great matchups. I think that Jets and Vikings one that you pointed out is going to turn out to be a great game. Mike White starting. Yeah. You saw what Mike White did last week. He went nuts. Yeah. And in a way, I was kind of surprised, not the fact that the Jets benched Zach Wilson, but the fact that they went to Mike White over Joe Flacco. Because Flacco yeah, started Flacco's, the season. Yeah, and Flacco he, started, and he, he got him out to a good start. Yeah. They were, what were they, 3-0 and when Flacco played? Mm-hmm. I'm defeated, yeah. Yeah. And then you go to Mike White. I mean, I mean, he played well, so the game will pay it off, but... That's a slap in the face to Joe Flacco. No, I don't think so. I mean, Mike White has shown flashes. Like, even last year, he beat beat the brakes off the Bengals and a couple of starts he had. I mean, he looks good. I mean, late part, just like, all right, let's see what Mike White has to do because we know what Flacco can do for us. Let's see what 
Mike White can do because he's kind of similar to Zach Wilson a little mm-hmm. bit. But but you're fighting for a playoff spot. You can't afford yeah. to just waste a game by wanting to see what Mike White can do. And also, I mean, the Bears were without Justin Fields. So the Jets were winning that game 100%. Former yeah. Bronco Trevor Simmons was starting. So, yeah. When I got the – I was watching the pregame coverage of that game – and the CBS guys were going crazy because they got the word that Simeon went down. Yeah, and they were going to play. They were going to play Nathan Peterman. Nate Peterman. And they were like, oh, no, no, no. Simeon's okay. Simeon's starting. Yeah. I was really wanting to see the Nathan Peterman revenge game. No, no, you don't. No, you don't. I don't want to see Nate Peterman on the field at all. I don't want to see it. Man I mean, threw five interceptions one game. <laughs> it was. That's still the worst performance by a rookie oh, quarterback. On the starting quarter, it was terrible. Yeah. I mean. Who was it against Jacksonville or Buffalo? I think it was against Buffalo. I think it was, yeah. So. Yeah. It wasn't, it wasn't great. He's been out of the league now. I mean, he's a practice squad guy. Third stringer. Yeah. Not necessarily the best track record for quarterbacks out of pit. Tom Savage, Nathan Peterman. Oh, gosh. Can he throw a pick? I was going to say, do yeah. I dare say Kenny Pickett? Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, but, so you say, man, y'all y'all are, y'all are better start losing, man, because I know all you Steelers fans, y'all don't want to win. You want to lose and get a nice, play, a nice draft pick so you can get Will Anderson or one that uh, Jalen Carter do from Georgia. Mm-hmm. Or one of the offensive linemen that's coming out. Yeah, I think there's a a lot of a lot of the recent mock drafts had the Steelers going offensive linemen. The dude from Northwestern. Um, him or also uh, Paris Johnson from Ohio State. The, those were the two that they had. Johnson's like I don't think he's a top ten pick. He's like now if you are outside the top ten, mm-hmm. you should most definitely get him. If not, yeah. they do from Northwestern. Although I think I think I saw something the, the guy from Northwestern said he's staying for another year so he's not I think you're thinking about the Penn State dude. Oh yeah, that's right. He was yeah. dude, he's a dog. That's right. It was the Penn State offensive lineman that said he was staying for another year. Dude's a dog. But speaking of speaking of Penn State, there's a lot of speculation that the Steelers might try and get Joey Porter Jr in the second round. I wouldn't be bad. No. I mean, I don't know necessarily if he's going to last until the second round. The corner, but, right? Yeah. He, he's good. He he, he could go mid, mid to late first, yeah. early second. But but y'all do have two early second round picks. Thank you, Chicago. Thank you, Chase Lathan. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing is with the Steelers, obviously fans would be excited if the draft picks were high. Most of, my, most of the Steelers fans I know – want to tank this season to get more help around Pickett and just build that team better. Mm-hmm. But Tomlin, I don't think – I think Tomlin wants to go on a run now because you beat the Colts. you got very winnable games in the next couple weeks. Oh, absolutely. The Falcons, you could beat the Falcons. Ravens at home, I think you get the Ravens at home. At Carolina. So those three could get you to 500 alone. Mm-hmm. And then you got the Raiders. At Baltimore, Cleveland. So, I don't know they're turning T.J. Watt. I mean, y'all are... The Ravens are the only team the Steelers have left to play that are over 500 right now. 
Yeah. I mean, everyone else is four and four and seven, five and seven. Yeah. So, I mean, it's doable, but it's interesting. You mentioned that about the Steelers fans, you know, because the ones that I've dealt with, yes, they want the Steelers to have those high draft picks, but nobody is going to actively root for the Steelers to lose. Sunday rolls I know, around. I know some, I mean, yes, they deep down, they want the Steelers. I mean, they, yeah, they might say they really want the Steelers to win, but deep down, they're like, dude, this draft class is pretty good. Like, we should just tank this season. Like, make it look, let's look good on the field and then, like, just not mm-hmm. show up in the fourth quarter and, like, just play terrible. But those Steelers fans are, like, in my family and close friends of mine. They want them mm-hmm. to tank their butts off. I don't think Tomlin will do it, though. No, he absolutely will. Hey, I haven't had a losing season yet. This schedule's very has a very easy schedule. So, just make a run. Now, I've said this before, but there is one person that Tomlin has to thank for not having a losing season, and that's the quarterback that just retired, Ben Roethlisberger. If it wasn't for Ben Roethlisberger, Tomlin would not have that on his resume, 100%. Ben has gone crazy for Tomlin. And even with the noodle arm last year. Yeah. And somehow making the playoffs, which was... mm, Hey, fourth quarter backyard football got the job done. Yeah, ain't wrong. Now, you know, while we're on the topic of Steelers quarterbacks, I want to get your thoughts on this because this is something that I have I've talked about before, and nobody really seems to have an answer for it. You know, you were talking about Kenny Pickett, everybody wanting to get him help, utilizing this draft class to get him help. I understand. Well, let me take let me rephrase this a little bit. There's one thing in the back of my head that will try it kind of explains why the reactions are what they are. But Kenny Pickett is 24 years old. And is he? Yes. Oh my gosh. I yes. thought he was like 22. No, he's 24 years old. Holy smokes. And while he has gotten better the past few weeks, better meaning not throwing as many picks. He's still not at the level down machines, that he is. should be. But yet, when you look at Steelers fans and their thoughts on Kenny Pickett, it's, oh, well, he just has to improve. He's got to settle into the NFL. It's Matt Canada's fault. Every excuse in the book. But how much can you blame on Canada, though? I mean, yeah, I mean, Canada's yeah. not a great play caller, but still, like, Pickett can still. I mean, he's had enough games now. He started, what, eight games now? Mm-hmm. He's just trying to get, like, a raps of the NFL by now, you would think. But yet you still have fans who are defending him with everything and saying, give it time, give it time, he'll he, get better. Because he's only a rookie. And he, everyone thinks he's the franchise quarterback. Personally, I don't think he is. But but my question is, where was that attitude in 2019 when Mason Rudolph got thrown into the fire for Ben Roethlisberger? Mason Rudolph was labeled as a bust after three games. Mm-hmm. After his entire rookie season, no. he stood there on the sidelines in a hoodie and sweatpants because Ben was one and Dobbs was two. So that was his first real NFL mm-hmm. action. He's getting labeled as a bust after three games, and now eight games into his NFL career with Kenny Pickett, it's just, oh, give him time, let him develop. Well, one thing to mention on the Rudolph thing, Ben also didn't want to, like, mentor him or do nothing like that. No. He was like, he basically said, you wasted a third-round pick where you could have got me help Mm -hmm. instead of drafting a potential replacement. Now, it's very different for a first-round QB and a third-round QB. First-rounder, you're making all that money from the first round. Yeah. You have all these expectations. 
Third rounder? No. You don't expect much from a third rounder. Maybe compete for a backhouse spot. Maybe come in, game manage a couple games till your starter's back. But that's the huge difference between them because Kenny Pickett is a first-round pick. He's from Pittsburgh. Mm -hmm. And they just want to hold – just want to hold on. It's like, dude, because every first-round QB, like, look at um, Baker Mayfield. Browns fans were defending him for, like, three years. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, it's not his fault. Oh, it's the uh, coach's – it's Hugh Jackson's fault. It's this guy's fault and all this and that. Mm-hmm. And then after a while, they're just like, okay, we can't really defend this dude anymore. Yeah. But that's what I think is going to happen to Kenny Pickett because, I mean, has he thrown for over 200 yards yet? I don't believe so. I know he's getting, like, he completes, like, between 14 to 20 passes a game. Mm-hmm. But they're not, like, nothing crazy. I mean, yeah, he'll take a couple shots downfield, rarely. But he's mostly hitting, like, check downs or tight ends, just playing it safe. I mean, it's smart for a rookie QB just to build a little bit of confidence. But you've got eight games under your belt. What did you think? I mean, you're four and seven. What do you got to lose? Like, you can take shots downfield, be a little bit more aggressive. But that's my opinion. Yeah. I mean, I take that back, actually. There were two games, three games, rather, he threw for over 200 yards. All right. He threw for 265 in the loss against Cincinnati. Did he? He threw for 257 in the loss against Miami. And he threw for 327 in the destroying that Buffalo put on the Steelers. But in each of those games, he threw the ball 42 times against Cincinnati. 44 against Miami, 52 and 52 against, against Buffalo. Buffalo. Wow. I mean, if you're throwing the ball 52 times, I'd like to hope you can get over 300 yards. Oh, yeah, you would hope so. I mean, he does it over that. Yeah, I would expect him to get over 200. Mm-hmm. But like you said, you know, aside f- I mean, his action started against the Jets. He averaged 9.2 yards per completion in that game. Ever since then, it was 6.3 against Buffalo an abysmal 3.7 against Tampa, 5.8 against Miami, 5 against Philly, 6.6 against New Orleans, 6.3 against Cincy, and then 6.2 against Indy. So, like you said, it's check down Kenny. Yeah, it is. I mean, for rookie QBs, I mean, you want to do that, hit the check downs, take what the defense gives you to build a little bit of confidence. Mm-hmm. Like, if he, like, because earlier he was just launching it wherever. It was getting picked. He lost confidence, it looked like. And then now Canada, I think, and Tom were like, hey, take what the defense gives you. Start doing that, build a little bit of confidence up, and then boom, mm-hmm. hit hit an open man downfield or do something. Yeah. But, man, that's my opinion on it. So, you know, we were talking about earlier the playoffs, you know, especially like the NFC East, all four teams currently in the playoffs right now. You've got a lot of sp- tough – you've got a lot of teams still fighting in the mix – in both the AFC and the NFC. Is there a team that is either in either of those conferences that you see maybe not being in the playoffs right now, but could maybe sneak their way into the, one of those final wild cards? I think the Chargers. I think the Chargers could maybe sneak their way in. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're the eighth seed right now behind the Jets, who are 7-4. and four. I mean, they're only one game behind. Yeah. So I can see the Chargers maybe making a run. They got... I mean, they got a tough schedule the next couple, three games. Raiders, they're a tough team to play, even though they're 4-7. and seven. Mm-hmm. The Dolphins, and then the Chargers, that's a tough three-game stretch. Yeah. Luckily, they got two of those games at home, but if you're, if you're a Chargers fan, you know this. Um, there's not really home field advantage for yeah. the Chargers. So there's that. And then for the NFC, 
I think Seattle. That's what I was thinking Seattle, Seattle as well. Possibly make a run. Let Geno cook. Yeah, I mean, hey, let Geno cook instead of Russ. I mean, hey, there you go. But, I mean, maybe Atlanta mm-hmm. because they're only one game behind in the NFC South. So, and Tampa has a tough, tough schedule coming up. Yeah. Saints, they always, Saints always give them the run for their money. At 49ers, Bengals. And then they go to at Arizona. So that's a mm-hmm. tough, tough four game stretch there. Yeah. And for the Falcons, they got Pittsburgh this week, Saints, Ravens, Cardinals. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's a lot of, a lot of, Battles that are going to have to be sorted out. Most definitely. But and then you also got Carolina and New Orleans at four and eight, just right behind them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because like you said, Tampa's five and six and winning the division. Yeah. Because that whole division's a nightmare. Oh, if you're not kidding, sounds like the AFC South. Yeah. <laughs> There's only one team that's a winning record, and that's the Titans. Everyone mm-hmm. else is four and seven or one and nine. Yeah. And then, I mean, I know we've talked about it some, but. What is going on in Green Bay that they're four and eight? Um, I mean, I don't know how they're four and eight. Actually, no, we get you all know where I'm going with this. You can all say the wide receiver help that mm-hmm. Rodgers is missing, Devontae Adams, and even the defense. They aren't playing as good as everyone was thought they were going to be playing. I mean, I thought it was going to be like one of the best defenses in the league, at yeah. least top five, top ten. They're giving up over 20 points a game. Mm-hmm. I'm like, you're not going to, especially if you, you guys can't score points like they have not been able to do, you're not going to win. Yeah. So now the question becomes, is Matt LaFleur on the hot seat? No, not at all. You Man has think? had a winning season every time he's been there. This might be the first time he's had to have a losing season, and I think he's safe. Mm-hmm. He's 100% safe. Yeah, I mean – I was kind of leaning along that as well. I just kind of wanted to get your thoughts. but I mean, Rodgers, he ain't having a bad year. Yeah. 21 touchdowns, nine picks. I mean, the nine interceptions, yeah. It's mm-hmm. very rare for Rodgers. He, he might have double-digit interceptions that have not happened, I think, since, like, his second year in the league or mm-hmm. something like that. It's been something crazy. Yeah. Now, speaking of Aaron Rodgers, while we're on this subject, this will be the last thing for today's show, or for this segment, rather. <clears throat> What the hell is up with Aaron Rodgers asking Deshaun Kaiser if he thought 9-11 was real? What? You didn't hear about that? No. There's a there's I mean, a he's story. in the conspiracy theories and stuff. I mean, like, he's on, he goes on the Pat McAfee show for Aaron Rodgers Tuesdays. And if you haven't watched it, you should go watch it. It's a lot of fun. It's a fun time to listen to Rodgers. And he's, he is, like, a conspiracy theorist dude. Like, he mm-hmm. likes into it. But I didn't know he said that. Why yeah. Why say this? When Deshaun Kaiser got to Green Bay... The first thing Aaron Rodgers told him was to do research on 9-11. And apparently Sports Illustrated even tweeted this out, that Rodgers once asked Deshaun Kaiser whether or not he believed in 9-11. And Kaiser was kind of confused and was like, why wouldn't you believe in 9-11? And apparently Aaron Rodgers, his only response was, well, you should read up on that. I mean, there, I mean, he is a conspiracy theorist guy. I mean, most some people are. I mean, I mean, I I believe it. I, I'm not going to get into it. I'm not going to get into it. I'm not going to get into it. I mean, 
That's crazy. He said that? Yes. Oh, my gosh. I mean, I get, you know, there's a lot of conspiracy theories that Aaron Rodgers might believe in. You believe in aliens? Me? No. No? No. Aaron Rodgers does. I mean, after he asked Sean Kaiser about 9-11, I wouldn't be surprised if he believed in unicorns. I mean, how the hell are you going to sit there and ask someone if they believe hmm. that the worst terrorist attack in U.S. history actually happened? Are they? I don't know. It's about the conspiracy theory stuff. I mean, it did happen, obviously. Yeah. But I think he was trying to say, like, who do you think was behind it? I think was what he was trying to get at. Yeah, I mean, that's that was kind of what I was just thinking as you were talking, you know, like, is he one of those – is Aaron Rodgers one of those people that thinks Bush did 9-11? Good. We don't know. I mean – We may never I, know. Yeah. That'll that'll certainly be an interesting story to develop. But got to love the NFL. You got to love Aaron Rodgers love and his Aaron conspiracy Rod- theories. He's the best QBs of all time. You're listening to the Three Rivers Talk Show here on the Bethany Online Radio. Step aside once again when we come back. More football talk this time, looking specifically at the Pittsburgh Steelers right here on the Bethany Online Radio.
and we're back on the Three Rivers Talk Show, looking now at the Pittsburgh Steelers. As I mentioned last segment when Dylan was here in the studio with me, Kenny Pickett has had his improvements over the last few weeks. And by improvements, that improvement being not throwing any interceptions. I mean, you can see the confidence starting to radiate a little bit more. But aside from that, there's not really much of a difference. I mean, you would have to go back quite a few weeks to see the last time that Pickett threw an interception. I believe, it was, yes, it was against the Eagles when the Steelers lost 35-13 the last time Pickett threw an interception. The last three weeks, however, while Pickett is not throwing any interceptions, you're also not getting a lot of him with a lot out of him with touchdown passes. He has just one touchdown pass in the last three weeks. And in those games, the Steelers have put up 74 points. Just one of them out of the hand of Kenny Pickett. Of course, Kenny Pickett is capable of running the ball in. And I will confirm here in just a second whether or not he had any rushing touchdowns. He did, in fact, have one against New Orleans. Pickett did not have any against Cincinnati. And against Indianapolis, Pickett did not. So two touchdown contributions for Kenny Pickett, one on the ground, one in the air in the last three games while the Steelers have put up 74 points. Regardless of whether you want to include that rushing touchdown or not, it's still not what you want to see from a guy you believe is your franchise quarterback and what you see, what you want to see from a guy who you took in the first round because he was, quote-unquote, the most NFL-ready. So essentially what you're seeing right now out of Kenny Pickett, and this term has gotten thrown out a lot recently. Kenny Pickett is essentially a game manager. Of course, when you think of game manager, you think of a lot of essentially league average guys. You're Ryan Tannehill's, you're Jimmy Garoppolo's. Those are the ones that you think of to be a game manager. You're Jared Goff's even. As much as I love the fact that Pickett isn't turning the ball over and has not thrown an interception the last three weeks, and he's taking care of the football, not killing the Steelers offensively. Being a game manager is not enough for the Steelers. Yes, they have invested a ton of money into their defense. But the defense still blows. They are terrible. Aside from a handful of guys. And those five, maybe six, can't do everything. That defense is terrible. The offensive line for the Steelers 
is nowhere near what it needs to be. The running back scenario, not good enough at all. When you have a game-managing quarterback, you need everything else around them to be perfect. You need an elite defense. You need a solid offensive line. You need a great run game. And the Steelers don't have that right now. You know, last segment I was talking about Mason Rudolph. Mason Rudolph was essentially a game manager for the Steelers in 2019. The offensive line was better. The run game was better. The defense then was top-notch. And yet the Steelers hung around in the playoff hunt until the very end because Rudolph was a game manager. And when Hodges got thrown into the mix, he was the same thing, a game manager. But the Steelers are now at the point where you draft a guy like Kenny Pickett to be your franchise quarterback. You should not be drafting somebody in the first round and accept the fact that they are a game manager. I mean, what's the point of drafting someone in the first round who would be a game manager when you could go and get that in free agency? I mean, hell, Mitch Trubisky is essentially a game manager as a quarterback. And the Steelers went out and brought him in through free agency. Now, Mitch Trubisky was also a former first-round pick. Jimmy Garoppolo was a second-round pick from the New England Patriots back in 2014. Ryan Tannehill was taken eighth overall by the Miami Dolphins and is now a game manager for the Tennessee Titans. Taylor Heineke in Washington is a game manager because he's only playing right now simply due to the fact that Carson Wentz is god-awful and you can't throw him in there. And Heineke is trying to win football games for the Commanders. Heineke, of course, is a little bit of a different scenario because Heineke wasn't a pristine draft pick. Heineke even spent time in the XFL because he was not ready for the NFL. I mean, so in a way, it's a much better scenario for Heineke to be a game manager than Tannehill, Garoppolo, Trubisky, and now pick it. But then the question becomes, is game manager an insult or a compliment for a quarterback? Because there's a lot of debate and speculation about that. If I sit here and label Kenny Pickett as a game manager right now, am I, am I talking about his elite qualities to not turn the ball over, protect the football? Or am I sitting here belittling him because he's not good enough to be a franchise guy? And the truth is, the term game manager and the connotation that it brings is simply dependent upon the circumstances of the quarterback. 
when you look at a guy like Ryan Tannehill, who was taken eighth overall by the Miami Dolphins, his career trajectory at that time was not to be a game manager. It's a disappointment and an insult for Ryan Tannehill to be a game manager. But when you have Derrick Henry, you can get away with that. And that's exactly why the Titans continue to win football games, because their defense is strong, their offensive line is strong. You have one of the best running backs, if not the best running back in football in Derrick Henry. You can get away with having Ryan Tannehill as your quarterback, and that's exactly what Mike Vrabel's success plan is. You know, you have Jimmy Garoppolo, who was a former second-round draft pick of the Patriots, didn't get an opportunity to play until he got traded to San Francisco. And now Garoppolo is a game manager for the 49ers. They were trying to trade Garoppolo because of Trey Lance and wanting to get a much more dynamic and explosive quarterback for their offense besides having a game manager in Garoppolo. Unfortunately, they couldn't find a partner because of Jimmy G's ridiculous contract. They had to restructure it, and now Garoppolo is getting to play because of Trey Lance being out for the season. And again, you've got Garoppolo keeping them in the playoff hunt right now because he's a game manager. The 49ers are 7-4 and four right now, just a game ahead of Seattle for the division lead in the NFC West. But again, Garoppolo is considered to be a failure because he's a game manager right now. The same goes for Mitch Trubisky, a former second overall pick, should not be ending up as a game manager. And Kenny Pickett is in the same boat as a 20th overall pick, should not end up being a game manager. Of course, Kenny Pickett, it's still a little bit too early to say that because he is just, in fact, a rookie, as you all are well aware of. But... To see Pickett being a game manager right now is far from a solid sign. Because if Pickett is just a game manager now, then what's he going to be four years down the line? You know, typically a game manager is what you turn to as a last resort of we think you can be good, but only if you're a game manager and you don't turn over the football. And we're already seeing that in Kenny Pickett. If his career is a game manager, then it's a terrible pick by Kevin Colbert in his last draft with the Steelers. And it was a terrible decision to go with Kenny Pickett. It's not anything that anyone could have seen coming when they drafted Pickett because he was, in fact, the most NFL-ready quarterback out of everybody in the class. But he hasn't panned out so far in the NFL. He just hasn't. But then you look at someone like Taylor Heineke, who went undrafted, spent time in the XFL, and is now in the National Football League, keeping Washington relevant by being a game manager, and he's considered a success. And again, it's because Heineke went undrafted, had no expectations whatsoever to be a quarterback in the NFL. Heineke didn't even have expectations to make a roster, much less being 
a starting quarterback. And, you know, I would even go out there right now and say that Kirk Cousins and Matt Ryan are essentially game managers at quarterback. Matt Ryan did not used to be a game manager, but he has turned into that late in his career because he's declining. Kirk Cousins is much of the same, turning into a game manager. Of course, Cousins was never really a guy that you would see light it up. He did for a few years in Washington, 2015 to 2017, did well. And then his first year in Minnesota, 2018, although 2020 and 2021, he threw for over 4,000 yards. But again, ever since he came to Minnesota, Kirk Cousins has essentially been a game manager. Matt Ryan, his later years in Atlanta, and now with the Colts, is a game manager. Kirk Cousins was not a first-round draft pick. He was taken in the fourth round, and the plan was for him to be the backup to Robert Griffin III. That was, at the time, the plan for the commanders, then called the Redskins, was that RG3 was going to be their franchise guy, and then Kirk Cousins was going to be his backup for the entirety of their careers. And then you have Matt Ryan, and he was taken third overall. So while Matt Ryan did well early in his time with the Falcons, he dipped down to become a game manager. So he has a little bit more of a reason. But again, the point is, it's all dependent upon the context of the player and what their expectations are based on when they were drafted as to if a game manager is a compliment or an insult. And for Kenny Pickett right now, it's simply an insult. And I will stand by that until Pickett proves me wrong otherwise and can show that he is not just going to take the easy option and go for a check down. Because you don't need to waste a first-round draft pick on a quarterback that's going to throw checkdowns. You had that in Mitch Trubisky. That was one of the complaints from the Steelers fan base saying that why Pickett needed to start was because Trubisky was only throwing checkdowns. Hell, I will even go as far as saying that Steelers fans wanted Ben Roethlisberger to retire because all he was doing was throwing checkdowns. Roethlisberger wanted to come back for this year, and the Steelers essentially said, we're going to go another direction and forced him into retirement. The Steelers could have held on to Ben for another year if all they wanted was a game manager to throw checkdowns which is the whole point. Pickett needs to either improve or he's going to always be labeled as a game-managing first-round bust. Now, along those same lines, 
Pickett has the chance to do well over the last handful of games. The Steelers are four and seven, six games left. The Steelers technically are still in the hunt, but it would take five and one, if not winning out, to see them making it into the playoffs, which, to be quite honest, would not be the better thing for the Steelers to do. As Dylan said, you've got the five and seven Falcons, seven and four Ravens, four and eight Panthers, four and seven Raiders, seven and four Ravens, four and seven Browns. The Ravens being the only team that Steelers play remaining over 500. Everyone else, four and seven, four and eight, or five and seven in the case of the Falcons. So it's very manageable for the Steelers to finish with a semi-decent record in 2022. But whether or not it's best for the team moving forward is a different question. I don't know necessarily how the Steelers are going to end up. I could see them finishing anywhere from 7-10 and 10 to 8-9 and nine or 9-8 and eight maybe. I don't see them going 10-7. and seven. There's no way. But that's the point. There's a lot of discrepancy right now with the Steelers. You don't know which direction they are going to go. It's a very doable schedule, but will they be able to get it done? That's a different question because the Steelers have been widely known for not being able to get it done against teams under 500. Yes, that has been when they are well over 500, but that's still something the Steelers have hanging over their heads. And when you have a run game that is not what it needs to be with Najee Harris, who is going to play Sunday in Atlanta, when you have an offensive line that is still inconsistent and not necessarily what it should be, you have a defense that has some of the most money invested into it in the league and still continues to be terrible week in and week out. Anything can happen. And it's going to be very interesting to see how the remainder of the regular season plays out for the Steelers. You're listening to the Three Rivers Talk Show here on the Bethany Online Radio. Step aside. Baseball talk when we come up next. Looking at the Pittsburgh Pirates as they have started their off-season plans and are looking to do more right here on the Bethany Online Radio.
we're back on the Three Rivers Talk Show. One final segment here for you this afternoon. Looking at the Pittsburgh Pirates, as I mentioned before the break, the offseason in baseball well underway. The Pirates have been, for their standards, rather busy. As Ben Charrington, well aware of the fact that this team has multiple needs that needed to be addressed and has begun to take care of some of them. Recently, you saw the Pirates go on a spree of acquiring first baseman. Already discussed a few weeks back, the G-Man Choi trade. They claimed Lewin Diaz off of waivers from the Miami Marlins. Diaz, more known to be a glove than a bat designating Hoy Park for assignment as a corresponding move. And then Carlos Santana was signed by the Pirates just a few days ago, officially on a one-year $6.7 million contract. And the corresponding move for that was designating Lewin Diaz for assignment. Diaz expected to go unclaimed and then hanging out with the Pirates down in the minor leagues. I would fully expect him to get an invite to spring training to also compete for the first base job. So that in itself take cares of takes care of, I should say, two big questionable positions that the Pirates had gaping holes in at the end of the at the end of the 2022 season. First base and designated hitter. Santana and Choi are going to split between DH and first base based upon, you know, the handedness of the starting pitcher. Shelton will have that flexibility to make the change in game if needed, or who knows if, if it's a left-handed pitcher and Santana struggling against left-handed pitching, Choi may play first. And then you see someone else entirely as the DH it's possible, but more than likely, in 99.9% of circumstances, the Pirates have first base and designated hitter sorted out with Carlos Santana and G-Man Choi. My thing is, personally, G-Man Choi has two years on his contract left, I believe. Carlos Santana was just a one-year deal. So, and neither of these guys are young by any means. G-Man Choi is 32, if I'm not mistaken. I'll double-check here. And Carlos Santana is 37, I believe. Once again, I'll confirm their ages in just a minute. But the point is, the Pirates more than likely don't see these guys as being long-term options. G-Man Choi, 31 years of age. Carlos Santana, 36. So I was ahead by a year for both of them. So knowing that you have a 31-year-old and 36-year-old as your two options for first base and DH, Choi more than likely to stick around longer than Santana simply due to age. But you could also see Santana being a guy that gets dealt at the deadline 
if the Pirates are struggling and aren't contending, which nobody's really expecting them to contend this season. But they still might try to hang around the 500 mark, maybe, and this is a big maybe, push for that final the final wild card spot. That's a big maybe, a dream, if you will. But in a way, it almost seems as if the Pirates have a lot of hope in Malcolm Nunez, the first baseman prospect that they acquired from the St. Louis Cardinals in the Jose Quintana trade. And I'm not saying that that isn't justified to have high expectations for him, but nobody really knows what you are going to get out of him at the major league level. If you can get from Malcolm Nunez what you got out of him in double A Altoona when he came over, you're going to have an incredible player. 105 at-bats, 286 average, 5 dingers, 21 RBIs. Of course, very small sample size. Even if you get what you got, even if you get what the Cardinals got out of him in double A, when he hit 255 with 17 home runs and 66 RBIs, I would take that. Might want the average to be bumped up slightly to 265, 270, but I would still, generally speaking, take that from Malcolm Nunez. But again, it's not a guarantee that's what you get from him. So I'm a little bit still skeptical of the Pirates' plan for first base in the long run. But aside from that, the Pirates also have two big gaps to fill catching rather three catching and pitching and I break pitching down into two components rotation and bullpen I'm going to start with catching because it's a little less complex there's still a lot of talk that the Pirates are going to bring back Roberto Perez as a veteran. JT Brubaker the other day talking about how well they liked working with Roberto Perez, how much he made them better in the short time, them being the pitching staff when Perez was healthy. But again, you're seeing Roberto Perez, a guy who is a glove first, doesn't have much pop in the bat whatsoever, and is on the wrong side of 30. Aside from Roberto Perez, there are a couple of guys like Jorge Alfaro, who is capable of being a starting catcher in the short term that the Pirates could go after. A little bit more pop in the bat. Not necessarily as solid defensively, but in my opinion would still be a big upgrade over Roberto Perez or the better option 
would be to promote Andy Rodriguez. Have him start on opening day as your catcher. If the Pirates want to sign somebody like Roberto Perez or even Jorge Alfaro to be their backup catcher, so you don't have another scenario where you're bat- where you're swapping between Andrew Knapp, Taylor Heineman, and that level of a catcher. If you want to sign Alfaro or Perez as your backup to mentor Andy Rodriguez, then fine, do it. But I don't think either of them should be the starting catcher. I truly believe it should be Andy Rodriguez. He's shown at double A he can pop. He has pop in the bat. He can hit. He's shown it at triple A. Steady glove behind the plate. Have him catch and wait for Henry Davis to be ready. Because the thing is, there's no such thing as it being an issue if Andy Rodriguez and Henry Davis both pan out. Worst case scenario, you have two talented catchers. And they both compete for the starting job. What would ideally benefit the Pirates, and this is something I could 100% see moving forward, Andy Rodriguez is the first one to crack the big league roster as a catcher, starts there, Henry Davis comes up, he takes over as the full-time catcher, and Andy Rodriguez becomes Joe Maurer 2.0 and moves from catcher to first base. Of course, Maurer moved to first base because of concussions and at that time, the Buster Posey rule was not in effect. But I could very much see a similar scenario here with Andy Rodriguez. And then that would kill two birds with one stone as the Pirates would have catcher figured out with their starter in Henry Davis. And then they would also have a long-term answer at first base in Andy Rodriguez. But for right now, Andy Rodriguez should be the Pirates' starting catcher in 2023. I mean, he hasn't done anything to prove to you otherwise. Especially when you look at the new CBA. The Seattle Mariners are getting two additional first-round draft picks. Simply because they had Julio Rodriguez on their opening day roster and he won AL Rookie of the Year. I'm not saying Andy Rodriguez is going to start on opening day and end up being the NL Rookie of the Year. What I am saying is go with the high upside players. Go with the ones that you know are going to give your team the best chance. And if Andy Rodriguez does well and wins NL Rookie of the Year, then you get extra draft picks because of your aggressiveness and your decision paid off. You can't sit there and worry about Super 2 and you know try to keep that extra year of control. If Andy Rodriguez is the best solution for the Pirates – at catcher, then that's what they got to do. I mean, there's no ands, ifs, or buts about it. If that's if he's the best option, he's the best option. And that's what you go with behind the plate. Now, starting pitching and the bullpen are a little bit more complex, but I'll start with the rotation. Because you essentially have three guys I don't want to say they are locks, but 
more than likely. Well, let me say this. One is a lock. Rowanzi Contreras, 100% a lock for the Pirates rotation. The other two aren't locks, but they have very steep inside tracks. Mitch Keller, JT Brubaker. So you have, let's just say hypothetically, they're one, two, and three. And Contreras, Brubaker, Keller. You have guys who are going to compete for rotation spots in Johan Oviedo, Luis Ortiz. And then you have the long shots in Bryce Wilson competing. Maybe Chase the Young even, who knows. But the Pirates rotation needs help while Mike Burroughs continues to finish his development in AAA. Quinn Priester is going to be knocking on the door soon. But I would really like to see the Pirates be aggressive in free agency at starting pitching. Go out there and get a pitcher that is going to be a solid option in your rotation. Not a bounce-back guy like you did last year with Quintana, although that did work out very well for the Pirates. Quintana pitched his ass off. So I would not be opposed to seeing the Pirates go out there and re have a reunion with Jose Quintana. Ink him to a multi-year deal and bring him in. You can never have too many starters. I mean, worst-case scenario, you move JT Brubaker to the bullpen or someone like Luis Ortiz to the bullpen. Or if they don't want to get Quintana, go out there and have a reunion with Jamison Tyone. Tyone's going to be a free agent. Of course, Tyone would command a little bit more of a lengthier contract, one that's much more money than Jose Quintana. But both of those guys are solid options. Loved their time in Pittsburgh. Quintana has already been on record saying he'd be willing to come back. I would imagine Tyone is much of the same. I'm sure he mentioned something along those lines when he was dealt to the Yankees. But that would boost the Pirates' rotation so much. And then you have the depth guys behind them in Oviedo, Ortiz, and then Priester and Burroughs when they finally make the jump. What you don't want to have happen is you don't want the Pirates to skimp in free agency on pitching and be a little bit aggressive with guys like Ortiz, Oviedo, throwing them into the rotation, and then knock on wood, you have injuries, and your rotation goes from, your rotation depth, that is, goes from thin to thinner. Because that's exactly what would happen for the Pirates. Because it's baseball. It's a 162-game season. Injuries are bound to happen. A dream scenario would be the Pirates signing both Quintana and Tyone. Sign them both. What do you have to lose? The money is there. If you really want to improve, you sign Quintana and Tyone. Bring them both back to Pittsburgh, and then you can have a five-man rotation of Rowanzi Contreras, Mitch Keller, JT Brubaker, Jamison Tyone, Jose Quintana. That, of course, in no particular order. That would be a very solid five-man rotation. 
and then you stashed Ortiz in the bullpen, Oviedo in the bullpen. And there's no pressure then on Burroughs or Priester to develop any faster than they need to. If by some chance Quintana or Tyone get an offer that are too good for them to pass up elsewhere where somebody might be giving them more money, then the Pirates have to do everything in their power to get the other guy because you have to find a way to at least bring in one quality starting pitcher this offseason that you are going to spend a relatively good chunk of money on. Zach Eflin already signed for three years, $40 million to Tampa Bay. Starting pitchers are coming off the board. Clevenger's gone. Matt Boyd is gone. He's back in Detroit. It's now or never for the Pirates as far as getting somebody of that level. You've got Sean Manaya out there. There's rumors that the Pirates are interested in Kyle Gibson. He would be a bounce-back candidate at 35 years old. Wouldn't mind it. Not necessarily the biggest fan of that move. But again, Tyone's out there. Quintana's out there. You've got quality options. I wouldn't even necessarily mind a reunion with Chad Cool, Annie Ball Sanchez, Zach Davies. Of course, Annie Ball Sanchez is 39, so maybe stay away from him unless absolutely necessary. But there are options out there for the Pirates to really build their rotation and continue to develop players in the minor leagues like Priester and Burroughs without any added pressure. And then, of course, the bullpen is, I don't want to call it a disaster. You know what? It is a disaster. I mean, aside from aside from David Bednar, there's not really much of anything going in the Pirates bullpen. Will Crow was solid early in the season. He then dropped down significantly, was atrocious over the final month and a half, two months. You have, I mean, looking at, look at Crow's numbers. His ERA in the month of April, 115. Can't really expect him to keep at that pace. May was 360. He got roughed up in June, had an excellent July, and then August and September were just atrocious. So Will Crow is someone who is going to need to bounce back, but you can't count on him. Chase DeYoung did well in opportunities for the Pirates. I would say Chase DeYoung is more than likely guaranteed to have a bullpen spot in 2023, possibly even as the setup man behind David Bednar. Yeri De Los Santos, someone who came in midway through the season, did well at first, and then again, August, he had a bad month. But De Los Santos was to be expected to have that because he was a rookie last year. But again, De Los Santos is someone that I could see penciling in towards the back end of the rotation, rather the bullpen, with Chase the Young, David Bednar. Colin Holderman, 
the return for Daniel Vogelback from the Mets is a bit of a question mark. He was much of the same. He came in, immediately started well for the Pirates, had a few solid outings, and then ultimately ended up getting shelled. Holderman was one of those guys. He would do well in an inning of work or less than an inning of work. The second he tried to throw more than an inning and Shelton stretched him out, it was game over. And that was what cost Colin Holderman. So I think if he gets the right usage, he's going to end up being okay. Dwayne Underwood Jr. Average at best, I would say. I mean, he's probably going to end up having himself a spot in the bullpen. Had some solid flashes in May, July, and August, but June and September were bad for Dwayne Underwood. I mean, so again, it's sorting out the consistency in the Pirates' bullpen. I would expect one of the guys they protected from the Rule 5 draft, Colin Selby, heart-throwing right-hander as a rookie. I would expect him to be a guy who competes for the bullpen spot. But aside from that, that's not enough to even fill the bullpen. So the Pirates are going to have to add relief pitching. And there's a lot of it out there. You don't have to go for a guy like Edwin Diaz or somebody of his caliber. I'm not even saying that you have to go out and bring in someone like Kenley Jansen. But there's guys, Corey Knable, sitting in a market value of $5 million. You've got even Craig Kimbrell out there on the market right now. Will Smith, the reliever from the Astros. Got Brad Hand, someone who has notoriously killed the Pirates as a left-handed pitcher. Michael Givens. Michael Fulmer. Ian Kennedy. Of course, he's almost 38, so maybe stay away from him. Trevor Rosenthal, the former Cardinal. There are guys out there quality options as well that the Pirates can add. And, of course, that doesn't even include guys like Johan Oviedo, Luis Ortiz, who may not make the Pirates rotation but could be stashed in the bullpen. It's going to be something that the Pirates really have to look at and sort out because the bullpen and the rotation, for that matter, cannot be as awful as they were a year ago or it's going to be much of the same with the struggles for the Pirates, despite Ben Charrington's desire to improve each and every year. You've been listening to the Three Rivers Talk Show here on the Bethany Online Radio. I thank you all for tuning in here on this Friday afternoon. This will be the last episode until the middle of January. Unfortunately, I have a final exam scheduled for next Friday during the time that I would typically be on air. So once again, no show next Friday. The next show will be Friday, January 20th at 2 p.m. Once again, thank you all for tuning in today. Be sure to tune in on the 20th at 2 o'clock for the latest with your Pittsburgh Steelers, Pittsburgh Penguins, Pittsburgh Pirates, and more. Have a Merry Christmas, a Happy New Year, and we'll see you in January.